Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Before we get started, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Fringe Legal Newsletter. This is a weekly roundup of interesting things. Every Sunday, I send out an exclusive email with three to five of the coolest things we've explored that week. It could include exclusive content, sneak peek at future projects, books, articles, or new hacks. The emails are available only if you subscribe to the newsletter, and more than 530 people receive it every single week. You can join up at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. It's completely free. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Fringe Legal. Today, I'm excited to have Giles Thompson on the show. Before we dive in, I thought I would do something slightly different and give his life narrative in a chronological order. Giles is the son of a farmer, which naturally turned into him becoming a foodie. He went and did political science, which led to going into law school and actually practicing as a lawyer. He was formerly at Kirkland and Ellis and then HSF, Herbert Smith Freehills. And now he is a tech investor and an entrepreneur and the head of growth at Avoca based in the UK. Giles, thanks for joining me. Welcome. Thank you. The pleasure is mine now. Thank you very much for having me. I guess a good place to start uh, would be you practice as a lawyer and now you work for a legal tech company. As you speak to law firms, as you speak to in-house counsels and corporates, what are you seeing from a culture point of view from your days in practice to now? Are the are trainees, associates, partners, leaders, are they asking for different types of things to when you were in practice? Or is the conversation still the same? Of course, there's no one size fit all, but what, what's that spectrum look like from your conversations? I'd also be interested in your perspective in a moment as well as to what's changed, but mm-hmm. and actually whether you disagree or, or agree with me. But yeah, certainly I, I, I do see some differences. I've not been long out of the law. So even in the kind of that short intervening period, actually a lot has has changed um, as a result of the pandemic. The main thing I've really seen actually, and this is quite a granular answer, but is an increasing um, desire for collaborative tools. That is a result of the sort of physical collaboration and interface between lawyers being pulled away actually. So the, I certainly remember when I was, particularly when I was a trainee, because I was the one carrying the physical bit of paper but actually the process of having a physically printed out document and then marking that up and, and maybe three or four people layering on their amendments on, onto a markup. And actually the, the biggest trend that I've seen since I've left is people wanting to use tools that are akin to something like a Google Docs and everybody being able to chip in on a document and work on it together rather than working on divergent drafts. And I do genuinely think that a good degree of that is because of that physical process being pulled away. I think the other thing, and maybe it hasn't really changed since I left, but maybe I just didn't realise quite the extent of the interest that lawyers, and probably lawyers who are more senior than me when I was in practice, who want to have one foot in that camp of innovation. And so I think that there's definitely, even in the last sort of 18 months, there's been a huge proliferation of innovation secondments within law firms. So senior lawyers seeing it as a, potentially even as a a stepping stone towards partnership, actually spending some time in that innovation part of the business, and then maybe specializing in that area full time or taking those skills back and actually 
then improving the revenue of, of, of wherever they came from initially. So I, I'm meeting a lot of those people and really enjoying meeting a lot of those people. But I, I think that they seem to be proliferating and I constantly see job ads for people in those kinds of um, divisions. But they're not asking for technologists all the time now. They're, they're specifically asking for lawyers a lot of the time. But yeah, what's your experience? Yeah, I think I'd agree with most of that. Probably the distinction I would make is absolutely the collaboration point of view is true. The meaning of the word seems to differ greatly, right, from firm to firm or individual to individual. I'm not sure if the vast majority of, and I'll speak from the law firm perspective, that's the conversations I have the most, think of it as working together with their clients. I think what I hear a lot now, especially since COVID-19 last year, how can we replicate the environment where we could all sit in a room and work on a draft together to doing so digitally? And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's the, the approach of taking a offline practice online. That's one angle to that. The other side is how do I collaborate better with clients? How do I give them more transparency? And actually, for what it's worth, it's the clients that are asking more for that, right? They, they don't want to keep emailing or calling just to get an understanding of, hey, where's my matter at? Who owns what? Are we on target? And other things. So th those are probably the two things. The innovation point is, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge proliferation of that. I, I do catch myself sometimes because the view from inside the bubble, and I think both of us certainly are <laughs> inside the bubble, is very different uh, because when you go and speak to probably 90% of the firms, they're not thinking in that way. And you talked about innovation secondments, and I know some of your previous firms absolutely do that. To, in my view, and I'm happy to be wrong, I don't think that's the norm. I don't think most firms have innovation secondments. Very few do. I do think that there is a higher level of desire to go into innovation or something else that's not just yeah. practice and that as a pathway to both partnership and also as a lot of the practitioners think about i want to stay in legal but maybe i don't want to practice all the time and in the past one common route was maybe i'll become a psl that's not the only route of course but now it's well i could be a technologist i could be a innovation manager i could be X. I could go in-house and work for a legal tech company, as the case with both of us. So there's a whole bunch of routes now that weren't available before. So th those would be some of the things I'm seeing. Yeah, and, and I'll pick up on the point around collaborations, because I think you're, you're completely right. But just before that, I think the other thing as well is, I, I certainly receive a lot of phone calls, a lot of messages from people having made the, the, the venture that, into legal tech that I have made. And I think there's a lot of people who are thinking very openly at the moment about what type of role might be suitable for them. And the main fear that I hear from people when I'm speaking to them is, can I ever go back? And I think that's one of the beauties of these kinds of comments. And I think you're absolutely right to call me out there and say, actually, you know, that is the likes of the Herbert Smith Freeholds who are offering that kind of thing. And I think the, those people I speak to are at perhaps smaller firms. They don't have that kind of halfway house options. And actually one of the really inspiring things is people who create those kinds of positions um, themselves. And I find myself trying to recommend people to do that, knowing full well all of the difficulties uh, of doing that. And actually on the sort of collaboration point that you mentioned, you're totally right. I, and there's very good reasons why actually it's easier to replicate that into lawyer collaboration versus client lawyer collaboration. And I don't think it's easy at all to, to replicate either, really. But the client point is harder because there is a very good reason for it. But lawyers have a tendency towards perfection. 
and anything that you type in a shared document with a client, that's it's possibly legal advice. And so you end up in a bit of a silly situation where maybe you have to put in your engagement letter that if we're using so-and-so application, until X stage has been reached, you can't deem what we're putting in there as legal advice because everything needs to be signed off. So if you have, a, I know this is going out around the world, but in the UK context, if you have a trainee lawyer typing in a document and a client seeing that, they certainly shouldn't be relying on that. But how do you, yeah, how, how do you rationalize that process? Yeah, and, and replicate that situation where a trusted advisor is sitting in a meeting room with a client and actually going through something line by line. I had this conversation recently with probably about eight to nine different KM leaders. And that was the number one take for them. I think people are generally open to the idea, but there's a management of risk, compliance, data integrity, all of those things that come into play, which, I mean, it is not an easy problem to solve and I don't think anyone has it figured out yet, but I think those discussions are now happening more and more. The other part, and this probably goes into the second topic I wanted to chat about, is I think there is a linked to transparency as because at the moment a lot of the work that's being done by law firms a lot of it not all is done behind closed doors right you go in with your problem or you're seeking advice and eventually outcomes say response in the form of a draft or opinion or whatever it might be as you start working in a more multiplayer environment where people can see what you're doing then you have to get your clients comfortable and get yourself as the lawyer comfortable with people seeing the initial subpar work that you may be doing, right? The, and it's not that it's bad. It's just there's a degree of changes that will happen as the draft goes from the first draft all the way through to the eventual final delivery. And you really want to really let your client see how the sausage is made, not just from, hey, maybe I will need to rewrite this 20 times or maybe there is a trainee working on it and an associate and a senior associate not just the partner so all of those things come into play and I, I don't think we have that figured out and how that works well yet no and, and actually it's quite funny I, I, by the way I love the phrase with, when, we're, when we're playing multiplayer I think that's an amazing amazing <laughs> phrase in the legal context. love it but I think the other thing is you can't win as a law firm in a sense because if, if you're using a document automation software or something and you're creating a draft in seconds and you're, you're charging a good amount of money to do that, clearly there's a lot of IP that has gone into you getting to that point. So query whether time is the relevant thing anyway in terms of the value. But actually, the inverse, you're also not winning as a law firm because you know, if there's tons of work going in and you're trying to make it look like every single stage was easy and, and not super iterative and everybody working all hours on a document, um, you know, yeah, I, I guess it's a lot more comfortable and a lot safer having this sort of wall in between you um, where you can, you know, wrap up the package and then deliver it in a particular context. I think one, one thing that's quite interesting, Ab, is I've seen an, a slightly different take on this really take off. And it's something that's connected with the sort of more commoditized, outsourced legal uh, advice offerings that a lot of these big firms are doing. And actually, the... It's funny because in a different context, the client and lawyer collaboration can work really well. So, I, and, and I'll expand on that. So I've seen where corporates are doing routine contracting works so of something like a you know, procurement um, function. And, and I've seen where certain risk thresholds and that kind of thing are, are exceeded. At that point, then lawyers get added to documents or, or get added to a document repository and then asked to advise on particular documents if they fit a certain property. 
So that kind of collaboration has actually been around for a fairly good while. It's funny to see how where it's quite clear who's got responsibility for what and, and where advice has actually been deemed delivered. You can get around those things and actually people can work in, in pretty good harmony in that sense. Yeah, and I think that's right. A lot of these things are big changes for those that have been around and have been doing this work for any amount of time. So it's just making people feel comfortable by having some incremental things so they're used to the process, right? If you are warming them up by, as you said, if you're using something like Auto and you're able to turn things around quickly, but helping them in a way, hey, you need to give this to your client or your, your in-house teams need this, great, uh, we created and delivered this very quickly. Next time when you do that, they become a bit more accustomed to paying for efficiency rather than inefficiency, which has been the case in the past. Because efficiency doesn't have to mean that you're cutting corners or the level of thought hasn't gone into it. It is, in fact, the opposite, where you spend probably a lot more work up front to make sure you're thinking through a lot of that and you are spending more time problem solving than you are just producing things. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And there's definitely a, a mindset shift needed. And, and, and I suppose, actually, in a scenario where you've got you know a first draft that's completely... Um, spat out and, and, and the thinking is, has happened in, in the background so that it's literally 100% automated. I suppose you, you, when you get to that point, you actually get around a lot of these issues almost entirely because you've got that first draft. And then at that point, it does become a sort of true collaboration. But I, I, and I suppose you always probably run into the issues again when you go away and, and, and tear up that initial first draft. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't think the initial first draft often, often looks exactly the same by the time it has signatures on it. One of the things that I, I thought that certainly would be good to take get your view on that. As a lawyer that's just joining the workforce today in-house or in private practice, so let's say you're either a trainee or two, three, four years PQE, what do you think are the skills that they should be focusing on? And part of that is I know part of your interest came from your work with IP lawyers. I'm not saying everyone has to go out there and learn to certainly code or even be an expert in using tech, but what do you think are some of the things they should at least be keeping an ear to the ground about. This is a huge can of worms and I'm really glad you've asked me about it because it's something I'm, I'm fairly passionate about. This is perhaps a bit of a controversial thing to say, but I think that the skills that often junior lawyers at this point in time get rewarded for uh, and, and indeed, you know, they can absolutely excel at and move up um, doing, not necessarily the skills that junior lawyers are going to need to have in 10 years or indeed those junior lawyers who are starting or working now are going to need by the time that they're looking at partnership. And actually, one of the reasons I, I left practice myself was because, you know, I, I was doing IP litigation and thoroughly enjoying it. But a large part of what I did was taking precedent information and then reshaping it. And sometimes that was deleting and filling out square brackets. Sometimes it was a fair bit more complicated. And I, I wouldn't want to undersell how hard some of that can be. But ultimately, I was the most junior person on the team. So I was doing a lot of the more uh, monotonous and square bracket, literally filling out or, or, or deleting. And, I, and actually, I got pretty good at it. And, and I'm dyslexic. To avoid those comments about sort of attention to detail, I actually got quite good at creating almost algorithms in my brain around how to use find and replace, how to perform checks and all this kind of thing. And I thought, hang on, I'm getting good at this. And people are clapping and uh, you know, applauding me for, for getting better at this stuff. But actually... This isn't why I got into the law, but also this is stuff which is probably not going to serve me that well in the future. And this is not stuff when I look at the people who are more senior than me that really impresses me about them. And obviously, when I was a trainee, I was 
really impressed by people who knew every word function, but that's slowly changed. So to that end, what skills would I say to build? And I, I, I this again, a bit controversial, but this, the negative feedback I often got in practice was, why do you always try and find uh, a different way of doing things? Or why, why do you always overcomplicate things, Giles? And so I, I would actually say to people to sort of don't lose that. I think that's ultimately, I had it to a such a degree that I thought I, I actually want to change the way that certain things are done for the better. So I moved, but I think there's always a, a healthy element of that mindset, I think is really important to preserve. And I think it's important to remember, especially when you're on the junior end, people who are more senior don't necessarily have an incentive for you to keep asking those questions. Right. And you might set yourself apart as someone who is able to innovate and, and challenge the status quo and actually maybe even generate new forms of revenue for the business, but also for yourself and, and your place in the partnership. So I'd say hold on to that kind of challenge things mentality. Obviously, there's a time and a place, probably like 3 a.m. when you're trying to close transactions, not the time. But I, yeah, I think take advantage of the opportunities that are available to exercise that particular muscle and definitely network with te the technologists in your firm and network with you know pe people like ourselves are because frankly, we're, we're grateful for the attention from private practitioners or, or in-house lawyers, but actually because we might be able to teach something and, and, and give them a, a tool that will sort of help them stand out. Yeah, and I, I love so much of what you were saying because I think there is an element at different stages of your career, regardless of what you're doing, and certainly a technical career like legal practice, you will need to have different skills, right? What you need to be good at when you're a trainee in your first month is probably going to be very different to when you're a partner. And you need to be able to learn a lot of those things along the way. The frustrating things from everyone's perspective there isn't a rule book for hey at three months learn about these things so you can be ready in another three months time so you do have to do a lot of work because it will change and it will differ both based on the firm or the company you're with as well as your practice and what you may want to do in the future for sure you should be able to question and challenge things and sometimes if only to understand why something is being done in a certain way and it doesn't mean that it's right um, and it shouldn't change but at least it will give you the context in the background because some things which frankly seems quite absurd because they're done in in a particular way maybe because it makes sense from the client's perspective based on what they may need to do with a document or information and if you don't have that context as someone who's sitting there at 3 a.m. doing control F searches for square brackets, you would think this is definitely not a good use of my time, but there may be a reason for that doesn't make it okay, but there may be at least a reason that'll give you some solace. And the last point I'll say is the, the incentive piece that you talked about, right? There often isn't an incentive for a partner, let's say, or someone at a high level in a firm to get you to sit there and improve how you're getting the work done. I think that's true for what it's worth. I do think it's starting to change very slowly, but it's starting to change. Um, and one of the conversations I'm having in a few weeks is around how a lot of the partners and senior associates, they're ultimately managers, but they don't see themselves as that. And often they're not even trained as that. So that does create a gap in personal development and team development and people development that you might expect. And I think this is where in-house teams are generally a lot better because at least they have better or worse, a corporate structure who is aware of that and there is some programming there. And the very last point I'll make, I realize I've been talking for a while, is a big difference in someone who practiced as a trainee 10, 15 years ago, really getting 
a full understanding of what it's like for you today. And I mentioned that because it's actually important and helpful for your partners or your supervisor to understand some of the ways in which you're doing things because they may not know that anymore. Because if the last time you did that kind of work was 12 years ago, you would hope some things have changed. And that's not on your radar. So actually you may, again, time and place important, but you may actually be helping the whole process, but just being a little bit more vocal around that. Yeah, and I think that's right. And one of the things that I do a lot of and without directly plugging it is uh, the, the sessions, but what we do is we, we educate people on what our tech does. And we actually do have a large focus on the student population as well and, and on trainees because we're well aware that it's not actually that much of a long play to, to, till those people are basically deciding what technologies you know, companies use. And I, I certainly uh, was in that, the, the pair of shoes where I had to explain to a partner that you could use a PDF compiler as opposed to printing the document off and manually compiling it and then scan it, scanning it back in and in fairness, I don't know how long uh, Adobe's been able to to do that in a way that most people know, but it, it, I, I don't know, if, is it has it been 15 years? Or has it been as long as a lot of those partners have been at the firm? Probably not. Yeah, and, and that's right. And I'll give you guys a shameless plug. Yeah, I would, if you're a student, please do check out Avoca Academy and otherwise as well. I think it's a good resource to start learning some of these things. And if you're listening to this podcast, I already appreciate it because we do talk about these things quite a lot too. Awesome. Uh, so I, I just had one more, one more thing to talk about. I'm conscious of time as well. And touches on the sort of trust element. We talked around having transparency with your clients, the partners or supervisors that you worked really well with, where you felt like you were being heard or you were learning a lot. What did they do well to to basically enable you to go out there and learn things and take an interest in technology and all sorts of other things? I'm thinking of this as how do you encourage someone who's in your team, who you're working with to come forth and say those things? Because there is a trust deficit element where people feel afraid. It's like, if I go and tell them I don't know something, will this look bad for me? I think that's certainly prevalent in law firms and in, in my experience as well and in my discussions. How do you overcome that? There were definitely some fantastic mentors that I had. And I think the ones who were great were basically, if I would do it, was proposing to do something a slightly different way, they'd say, okay, before you go and actually spend the energy doing that, can you can you go away and explain to me what's wrong with the current process and also what what the benefits of your process and how do we actually get there? Uh, and then we'll make an assessment on that basis. And I think what it, that did is it forced me to have a degree of empathy with the way things currently were. And actually, even if they weren't ideal, there might be very good reasons, albeit slightly crazy ones, why it was a certain way. And I'll just use a certain, a certain example. I remember in a particular context, absolutely losing my mind because I, I was dealing with signature pages which have been signed on pages which had different document numbers and until you realize that was when I was a trainee until you realize the risk associated with that for a, a large transaction you don't really understand and yeah just un- doing that lawyery thing of, of using your internal anxiety that's been drilled into you to unturn overturn every a rock and really look at the negatives of moving away from the standard and then thinking about actually to be honest, that doesn't really match up with the potential benefits of change. And, and, and I think actually those supervisors really helped me to in my current role. So having that level of empathy where people say to me, okay, yeah, our house style, we, we need to make sure that header matches up three millimeter away from the, the row below or something. 
I get why that's super important because you know, if you have two signature pages and one of them is three millimeter difference to the other, yeah. that's a big problem. So yeah, I think the recommendation would be actually sit down and make time to talk through proposals like this and take them seriously. But I think the, the beauty of that is it also forces the person who's sort of coming out with a proposal to think seriously about it as well, because it's all very, I think mo a lot of this stuff comes from a place of frustration or frankly, just being fed up and tired, which is a, a situation I was in a lot as a private practitioner, but actually putting together a concrete proposal. Yeah, that, that's a much more helpful rather than an emotional outburst. It's an emotional output. That, those are great examples. There's some of these things that happen in the moment. You're like, why does this even matter? Why are we why are we making these sort of micro adjustments and moving things by millimeters? It matters to the clients and it matters overall to the practice sometimes. Yeah, it's important to take a breath every now and then and just think about it. And actually, when you do see the potential repercussions of that, it makes everything seem real. And it's like, okay, now I understand why that was the case. So awesome. Wonderful. Giles, thank you so much. When I publish this and with the show notes, you'll find a link to Giles's LinkedIn page. He's very, he's very prolific on LinkedIn and Twitter. So I'll link that link out to that. Please do reach out to him. I'll also link to Avaco Academy. And if there's anything else that we can help with, please don't be shy to reach out to either one of us. I know we are very happy to connect with both private practitioners and in-house folks because yeah, it's wonderful to learn and actually certainly if you disagree with anything we said it would be wonderful to hear your perspective too yeah de definitely and Ab, thank you so much for having me really appreciate it and i would say we'll invite you onto the podcast that we do at avoca as and when that's released but maybe it'll be a, maybe it'll be clubhouse now yeah exactly i need to get an iphone for that but awesome well, thank you so much Charles. wonderful having you on have a good day thank you everyone if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Fringe Legal Newsletter. This is a weekly roundup of interesting things. Every Sunday, I send out an exclusive email with three to five of the coolest things we've explored that week. It could include exclusive content, sneak peek at future projects, books, articles, or new hacks. The emails are available only if you subscribe to the newsletter and more than 530 people receive it every single week. You can join up at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. It's completely free. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show, and Priti Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.